Today on CityCast Denver. We're coming off a long holiday weekend and a fresh set of laws went into effect July 1st. Like this one that's supposed to save us some money at the gas pump. Governor Polis says the new legislation will save Coloradans around $45 million. Although the price of gas will only go down by about two cents a gallon. If my calculations are correct, my most recent trip to the Western Slope cost me $180 in gas. And this new law would save me around 72 cents. Cool, cool. Anyway, it's summertime in a major way. And when I don't feel like turning on the AC at home, there's no place I'd rather be than at the mall. A couple of years ago, I got an email that made me jump out of my chair. Alexandra Lang, a writer and architecture critic, said she was writing a book about the history of malls, my favorite topic in the whole world. And she wanted to talk to me about some of Denver's greatest shopping empires. Alexandra's book, Meet Me by the Fountain, An Inside History of the Mall, is out now. So I invited her on the show to talk me through Denver's own mall history. And don't worry, old Denver heads, Cinderella City gets its due. Today is Tuesday, July 5th, 2022. I'm Bree Davies, and this is CityCast Denver. Well, Alexandra Lang, welcome to CityCast Denver. Thanks for having me. So you wrote a history of the mall, and I love malls, and I loved your book, but I know you as an architecture critic. Why did you want to write about the mall? Well, when you're an architecture critic, you are trying to write about architecture for a popular audience, right? I mean, you want your stuff to be read by people who are just flipping through the newspaper and saying, oh, what's this building? What's the story? So when I went to write a book, I was thinking, what is architecture that people encounter every day? Like, what's architecture that they think they already know about, but actually they don't? And malls seem like a perfect example of that. I mean, we've all been to the mall. Many people love the mall, but I don't think most people think about it having a history. Yeah, that's a great point because I feel like the mall's always been there, right? It's just a thing that exists. Yeah. Yeah, if you're if you're Gen X or a millennial, I think the mall was just a fact pretty much anywhere you live. Like that's what you did. Like you went to the mall usually with your mom, and then when you got a little older, you tried to get your mom to drop you off at the mall. And you don't think about there not being malls or, you know, malls being different ways over time and the rest of it. So, yeah, it felt really ripe for people our age to kind of get into the deeper and sometimes darker history of the mall. So your book covers the mall as this thing in mostly American society. You talk at the end about sort of the global impact of what a mall is. But what I loved about it was the history is kind of applicable to any sort of major city in America. And for Denver, we have a couple of malls that really are imprinted in people's brains. Some of them still exist, but most of them are are demolished. So I, I wanted to walk through a couple of my favorite malls and touch on them with you to help me understand their role in sort of the, the history of the mall. So we had this mall called Cinderella City, and it was a giant mm-hmm. mall. I'm sure you've I'm sure you've heard of it. 
<laughs> I've seen pictures of it. It's one that people like to post on Instagram and some of the dead mall accounts because it was pretty spectacular looking. Yeah, it was it was gorgeous. It was huge. It was built in the Denver suburbs in the 60s. And it really kind of had a short lifespan. It lasted till the late 90s. And it was kind of your typical middle-class mall in terms of its offerings. But I, it was this mall that was like right at the prime time of the mall boom. So what what killed a mall like Cinderella City? I mean, the easiest answer to that is capitalism. <laughs> a mall like Cinderella City that was built sort of in the first flush of mall building in the 1960s when malls were really new and exciting tended to get boxed out in the late 80s, early 90s by the second great wave of mall building. When new mall developers thought, hey, Cinderella City is doing okay, but it's looking a little tired. Why don't we build a new mall, you know, five miles, 10 miles further out because now the suburbs have expanded. So that new mall is new, first of all, and people love new things. Maybe it has slightly better department stores. Maybe it has the hot topic. You know, it, it has various draws that are completely up to date. And so that new mall steals all the shoppers from the old mall. And then the old mall flails around for a little while trying to reposition itself. But ultimately, it can't compete with the new mall. Oh, my God. That's exactly what happened to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, this is like one of the points I try to make, which is that at their peak, there were 2,000 malls in the U.S. So there's no way my book can cover all of them. Totally. But I'm trying to talk to people about the patterns behind the malls because those patterns repeat everywhere. So I think even if I'm not talking about your mall, you can kind of say, oh, what she's talking about in Dallas or Michigan, like this happened in my city too. So these patterns are really applicable in a lot of places because the development of most post-war suburbs was pretty standard at a lot of places. Yeah, that's absolutely. And that's why I wanted to talk to you because I just felt like threading it through this Denver lens would give people a different perspective. But like, honestly, reading your book, it took me a long time because I had to stop every five minutes and Google every mall you talked about because you describe them in such beautiful detail. And I'm like, oh, I've never been to North Park in Dallas, which is like this art gallery. But like I wanted to see it. But I also, like you're saying, I felt that, oh, that was my mall. That was exactly how my mall was. And we had a mall open in the late 90s in the farther suburbs called Park Meadows and I think was definitely an impact on... Cinderella City's relevance. So another one of Denver's big malls is more on the sort of like class A luxury mall end, and it's the Cherry Creek Mall. And it was built in 1990, which is interesting to me because it is that later time frame when we were building less malls. And it's doing fine. It still exists. It's 2022. Why does a mall like that survive? Yeah, see, that's another pattern that you see repeated across the country. A lot of the malls that are going to survive and have continued to be successful were built really as those high-end luxury malls, like they're destination malls. You don't probably run into Cherry Creek for every little thing, but when you have to shop for a prom dress or something like that, like people want to go to the nice department stores at Cherry Creek. So that kind of mall has really held its audience because the stores there are still considered special. Um, it's offering service in a lot of cases that you can't get in other places. 
And it's kind of, it's an outing. It's a special event. So it's like they've held on to that glamour factor in a way that more kind of mid-range, you know, regular malls haven't. The other factor in all of this is the demise of the department store. Mm. The department store chains um, are literally the financial anchors for malls. And the higher end chains like Nordstrom, Neiman Marcus are doing much better than your middle to lower income department store chains. I mean, we don't have JCPenney, Kmart, Sears anymore in most cases, and they were the ones who were holding it down the kind of B and C regional malls. And so once you lose your anchor, it's really hard for that mall to stay relevant and even, you know, to stay exciting. It's super depressing when you look down at the end of the mall and there's this big dark store. And that's so interesting because from the beginning, Cherry Creek has had those luxury anchors. Right now it's Nordstrom. I think Neiman's is still left, but when it opened in 1990, it was Saks Fifth Avenue, Lord & Taylor. It did have what was then known as Made and F, which eventually became Macy's, but that was like the most mid or working class department store that existed in that mall. So one other mall I wanted to talk about here was called Buckingham Square. And part of the appeal for me as a teenager was you could smoke in it, which is so gross to think about now. But, it, you know, and you talk about this a lot in your book, the relationship that teenagers have to malls. And you also touched on this relationship that the mall has with teenagers is kind of fraught. Like, is it a place for them or are they a menace? Like, what did you find in your research about the relationship of the mall and teenagers? I mean, first of all, I don't condone smoking, but smoking <laughs> is a perfect example of the kind of little like burst of freedom that teenagers get at the mall. I mean, it's this place where you can be with your friends without parental supervision. And I think that's one reason a lot of adults have really strong memories of the mall is because this was the time when they tried a bunch of new things. And one of those in many cases was smoking. So yes, the mall can be a place of freedom, but also in a lot of cases, the mall also tries to regulate teens. Like the mall is kind of afraid of teenagers. The ideal mall customer for a long time was basically a white middle-class mother, and they're afraid that she'll feel threatened in some way by a group of kids being loud. So they try to kind of keep teens in the food court, or they try to keep them in arcades, which are always like in a dark hallway, like away from the fancy shops. <laughs> and they try to regulate all them also with codes of conduct. And those codes of conduct can say things like no more than four teenagers can be at the mall without an adult. Teenagers can't be at the mall after 6 p.m. All kinds of things that really kind of regulate their behavior and regulate their ability to gather as a group of, of kids. Yeah, that the rules and regulations part's always interesting to me. And it was always like selectively enforced, I think, depending on the time of day, how busy things were. But the hiding in plain sight thing, too, is very much something that was so appealing to me about the mall. But you interviewed me and my friend Yvette about the 16th Street Mall here in Denver. And I'm just curious, from an outsider's perspective, what do you think about the 16th Street Mall? 
Hmm. <laughs> I think that the 16th Street Mall has great bones, right? I mean, it was designed by a terrific team of architects. It was supposed to be this transit way so that the center of the city could be served by public transit, but also like have spaces for people to gather and kind of move freely. It had kind of different amenities along the way. But I think over the years, um, you know, the the sense of publicness and the public amenities there have really been eroded. And one of the things that I was talking to you and Yvette about kind of fears about the homeless population had really eroded uh, some of the structure that the, the 16th Street Mall was originally set up to support. So it, it's not really working the way that it was intended. And in order to make it work that way, again, a whole host of, you know, social services and, you know, public space improvements really have to happen. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. <laughs> what? Okay. I Sorry. agree. No, I agree. Yeah. It's, it's just something, it's a common conversation we have here in Denver is that, like you're saying, those basic needs aren't being met for anyone who wants to use them all, whether it's restrooms or you talk a lot about this seating areas, things like that, lighting and stuff like that. And it just automatically kind of gets siphoned into this complaint about homelessness. But in reality, we're not serving anyone. Yeah, I have had so many conversations this summer <laughs> about public bathrooms and public seating in multiple cities. I mean, I was just in Washington, D.C., and they have this beautiful Beaux-Arts Union Station, and they took all the wooden benches out of the main part of the station <sighs> because of homeless people. And yeah. it's just we're destroying the public realm for everybody because of fears of homelessness, but the only way to solve homelessness, help homeless people is by building more housing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 16th Street Mall was built like in, I think the early 80s. Where does it fit in this sort of history of malls, this kind of outdoor pedestrian space? Yeah, this was actually a really fun history to research, the pedestrian mall history. Because pedestrian malls are basically an urban fad where <laughs> there were about 200 built between like 1970 and 1985. And now all but about 25 of them are gone. So they were one of a number of strategies that city use, cities use to try to lure people back downtown from the malls. I mean, there's this kind of amazing cycle of you know, downtown boom, downtown bust. Okay, we'll build malls. Oh, wait, the malls have taken everyone out of downtown. We need to make the downtown more like a mall. And you just see the, you know, city leaders basically spinning their wheels and trying to figure out how to fix the problem of wanting people on the streets, you know, wanting a healthy business environment and services. And how can we do that? And pedestrian malls were one way to do that because it was seen as kind of fixing up the existing historic downtown and offering more amenities and more events and, you know, skating rink so that people would want to be there and not um, in the suburbs at the mall. Yeah, totally. It's, it's funny because we're right now pouring millions of dollars into redoing the IMPA's granite work, like mm -hmm. the design, because that's going to fix the problems downtown. I don't know. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Pine Melon, the farmer's market delivered. 
Pine Melon is a next-generation grocery delivery app that partners with over 200 farmers, ranchers, and producers in Colorado to help make fresh, locally sourced foods available to the Denver community at fair prices. Get high-quality meats, eggs, and dairy from small local farms, fresh-baked breads from local bakeries, and more, as well as all of your favorite pantry staples. Best part is, Pine Melon offers same-day delivery to Denver and soon Boulder within a two-hour window, no subscription necessary. Save time in your busy schedule and get fresh and healthy groceries delivered right to your door. Join the movement and support local today. Use promo code CityCastDenver for $75 off your first delivery at PineMelon.com. That's PineMelon.com. So a big struggle for malls in general uh, is this role of it as a public space. Like, is it public or is it private? And I think the 16th Street Mall in particular is like, almost 20 downtown blocks, right? It's like an open space. But it's been criticized as being policed as a private space. What do you think about the idea of the mall as a public space? Well, this was another really interesting part of my research. There have basically been, you know, Supreme Court and then state Supreme Court cases back and forth about whether or not malls are public or private space. And the first case about this was the uh, Logan Valley Plaza case in 1968, where Thurgood Marshall, writing for the majority, said that malls have to be public space, which meant in that case that they could be used for public protest because malls were becoming the new main street. Like he really saw the importance of malls and said, if we say that people can't protest on these new main streets, then we're really cutting off this major form of public speech. That said, things like the 16th Street Mall and other malls that are governed by business improvement districts do hire private security and private cleaning staff. And part of the underlying reason for that is to make them feel more like a private space and get policed more than a private space. However, they are still public space. And as far as I know, Colorado is a state in which you are actually allowed to protest at the mall. They have a different state law. So people should feel free to protest there. I mean, it's like, don't be distracted by the signs of privatization. It is a public space. That's a good that's a good tip because it actually that absolutely yeah. does happen. Like it is in this case, the 16th Street Mall does function a lot as the public square and that it is often a space where protests uh, come through the downtown. The last thing I want to touch on is the dead mall narrative. And in your mm-hmm. book, you said in 1980, the media also raised the specter of the death of the mall for the first time. And then later you said, Malls have been dying for the last 40 years. And I have to say, this blew my mind because the dead mall idea is something that I really connect with the 2008 recession and the that sort of interest, I think, in the quote unquote dying mall. But do you think this narrative of the dead mall is like sort of misplaced? I think it's a partial narrative. I mean, You're right to connect dead malls with the 2008 recession, but part of the reason you do connect them with that recession is that that spurred this boom in dead mall photography. I mean, the reason why people think malls are dead is because they've seen a lot of honestly like very beautiful and glamorous photos of dead malls. So that that cycle of dead mallness sparked 
a lot of really interesting artistic work as well as a lot of interesting dialogue uh, online. So that becomes this na dominant narrative of the mall. And I'm not saying that malls aren't dying. Like Cinderella City, other older class B and C malls are definitely dying. But even if all of those malls die, there will still be 700, 800 malls in the US. So that does not seem like a dead typology to me. And that's one of the things I'm trying to point out with the book is, yes, some malls are dying, but not all malls are dying. Like, don't get distracted by these very exciting photographs. <laughs> no, I agree. I love those photos, but I do feel <laughs> a strangeness about how much I enjoy looking at them. Yeah. I mean, I like looking at those glamorous photographs of the malls way back when. I, I don't think we should go back to, you know, getting dressed up to go to the mall like <laughs> they did then. But I think those photos show the excitement that was generated by the mall and kind of the pride people had in the mall. And that, I think, fostered a lot of community. And like, that's one of my overall points that for better or for worse, the mall is and was the center of a lot of communities. And we need to support that and recognize it and can start to mix in, you know, some public and community uses along with the commercialism. And that's what I'm thinking about. So we, uh, the closest we have to what's considered sort of like in a dead mall that's still operational is this mall we have called Southwest Plaza. And in the last couple of years, they totally remodeled the inside to the detriment, I think, the way that you talked about how the Mall of America is like very glossy and it's like almost you don't connect with it. But they redid this whole mall and it didn't change the fact that nobody was still coming to it. And I wonder if the future of that mall is developing that parking lot around it to serve the community in a better way because the community around the mall is booming. I mean, houses sell for way over asking in the neighborhoods around it, but nobody's going to that mall. Yeah, I think those parking lots, you know, for a lot of reasons, you know, top most environmental reasons are really ripe for development. I mean, if the community around that mall is mostly single family homes, why not build like multifamily homes on the edge of the parking lot to kind of, you know, bring the edge of the parking lot and the community closer together? Yes. There are malls that have cut roads back through their parking lots, including, you know, trees, sidewalks, bike lanes, to then connect the mall closer to the residential areas around it. There were a lot of things wrong with initial mall planning, and mall owners like specifically tried to separate themselves from residential communities. But I think today we want a lot more connectivity, and that's going to help um, a lot of transportation issues. So yeah, more people would go to the mall if they could just walk easily to the mall, if it was kind of part of like the node of a more pedestrian-oriented neighborhood. I love that idea. It makes so much sense. It's just like, will we ever <laughs> get there? I don't know. Alexander Lang, thank you so much. Thank you. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute to tell a friend about us? Rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. And subscribe to our morning newsletter, where today I'll be sharing some links and photos of Denver's malls of yore. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. See you later. Just for mom, the graduate and summer fun, for all at your Kmart sports centers. 
Guests from Mom include Samsonite, American Tourister Luggage, Healthways Exercise Bikes, Lopez Golf Shoes, and much more. Guests for the graduate include assorted attaché cases, luggage, Ray Floyd Golf Shoes, Spalding Golf Bags, and Zoller Golf Sets. All your needs for summer fun is at your Kmart Sports Center.